think I'm going to start a little off script. What is the toughest question you've ever been asked or had to answer? Do not say is my proposal. <laughs> Anything? What's your biggest comp- Oh, so like the interview question? Yeah. Why, what makes that tough, do you think? Yeah, or maybe it's a test to see if you brag, right? You overthink those things. Yeah, that's that's tough, right? Sometimes just as tough as you know, what's the what's the biggest failure you faced, right? Or the biggest challenge? Those are tough as well, or or the moral questions. Sometimes they shouldn't be so hard, but you you worry a little bit about the audience, right? That is. What else? Anything else? Well, last week we asked the seemingly simple question: Why? Why do we gather? Why do we do the things we do on Sunday mornings and, and hopefully the days in between? And we looked at the proper way we build a church, which is not with brick and mortar. And we looked at the proper way to engage in the church. And we discovered that the best way to do so was to start with the question why and work our way outwards to the how and what. And we had a little diagram up there that said if we say what, we're going to build a church then how we're going to raise money and why is so we can worship God. But if we say, we need to worship God, we need to make Jesus at the center of our life, and we work our way out from that, we might still build the same thing, but our motivation is clear. And so we looked into that last week. So I want to encourage you, if you missed it, to, to go back and, and listen to that message. We called it Starting With Why. And it's just a great, a great question to ask yourself, whatever decision you have to make. You know, why is this important? What am I trying to... You know, why am I doing this? And, and why, how, and, and who, and all those, they're great, very important questions. But it's the why that helps us focus on our purpose. And God calls on us with his questions, and he still does this today. But why would an omniscient, right, this is the all-knowing, and why would the omnipotent, which is the all-powerful, and, and the omnipresent, the ever-present God, Ask me anything. Why would God ask you anything if he knows all is everywhere and sees all? Why? I found this in Jeremiah 17.10. This is um, God speaking to the prophet Jeremiah. It says, I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind to reward each person according to their conduct, according to what their debts, de- deeds deserve. And this, this verse emphasizes that God, who knows the heart and mind of every individual, evaluates our actions and intentions. And while it doesn't mention questions specifically, it conveys the idea that that God assesses our hearts and minds to determine our true motives and conduct. And in a sense, this divine examination can be seen as a form of testing that reveals the true nature of our hearts. And, And God asks us questions to help us realize the true nature of our hearts as we think about how we're going to answer them. Because remember, God knows. Sometimes he helps us to realize this morning, we're going to take a dive into scripture and see what it reveals about the questions we're asked by God and what his purpose may be in asking them. And the Bible contains a wide range of questions posed to individuals and groups and, and humanity as a whole. And these questions serve as a means of conveying moral, ethical, and theological lessons that still apply today. And I, I found several instances where this occurred, and I've, I've grouped them in a few categories. Some of these may lead you to some introspection, and and I hope that they do. These questions are not mere words on ancient parchment. They're timeless inquiries that touch the very core of our faith and challenge us to grow as individuals and as a community. And as, as we explore these questions with our minds open to the belief that they are also being asked of us 
individually. We'll witness how they offer wisdom and guidance and moral lessons that remain relevant to our lives today. And this first group I call questions of self-examination and responsibility. Yuck, right? Genesis 3.9, the question is, where are you? I'm going to start at verse 8. It says, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me. She gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. I just add those last two verses in there because beyond the question I was going to ask because human nature from day one was not my fault. Not my fault. She did it. He did it. It did it. Right? After Adam and Eden, Adam and Eve had eaten from the forbidden tree in the garden of Eden, they felt shame and so they tried to hide from God's presence. But God, knowing all, he knew, he knew where they were. He knew what they'd done. He called out to them, or perhaps he called them out, right? Where are you? This question wasn't just about their physical location. Where are you hiding? But a profound inquiry into their spiritual state. Where are you in this relationship with me? It goes beyond this geographical inquiry. It challenges them to confront their actions, to admit their disobedience, and to take responsibility for their choices. And it serves as a reminder that God desires an intimate relationship with humanity and that sin separates us from his presence. Where are you? I need you here, close. Genesis 4, 9. The question is, where is Abel, your brother? I'll start at verse 8. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord came to Cain, where's your brother Abel? I don't know, replied, am I my brother's keeper? Again, God knew what had happened. God knew where he was. Following the murder of Abel by his brother Cain, God asked Cain, where is your Abel, your brother? And this is a call to account for the choices we make. This question was meant to prompt Cain to take responsibility for his actions, right? The true, honest thing to say would, I killed him. It illustrated God's concerns for justice and his expectation that we should care for and protect one another. Cain's evasion of this question led to further sin and tragedy. We know that to be true. Just the very next book of the Bible, Exodus 3.11. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? Maybe this is one that resounds with you a little more, right? Who am I that you should ask me to do something? Exodus 3, starting at 9. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I've seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. This is God speaking. So now go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? You see, when God called Moses to lead the Israelites out of Egypt, Moses questioned his own qualifications. Like, I, I, don't, I don't think you know who I am, Right? The story is a reminder that sometimes we question our own worthiness, even when God is the one who's telling us to do the task. And this question reveals Moses' humility and reluctance, but it also demonstrates God's ability to see seemingly, to use seemingly ordinary individuals for extraordinary purposes. That's why maybe it resounds with you a little bit. God's response to this question demonstrated that he equips those he calls and in Exodus 4, we, talk, we see Moses again. Moses says, what if they do not believe me? 
or listen to me and say, the Lord did not appear to you. Then the Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? What is that in your hand? A staff, it's a stick, right? Have it all the time. The Lord said, throw it on the ground. And Moses threw it on the ground. It became a snake and he ran from it. Then the Lord said to him, reach out your hand and take it by the tail. This is where he would have lost me. So Moses reached out and took hold of the snake and it turned back into a staff in his hand. This, said the Lord, is so that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Now think, so, so think about that. God has asked him to do something. Seeing the, the potential, seeing the power and the worthiness in Moses, and Moses said, who am I? Right? He's asking this, this question because he needed Moses to, to respond. And he equipped him, just like he does every one of us. He equips them. What is that in your hand? What gift have I given you? Is that the power of speech? Is it, is it another spe- uh, gift that, that you've been given, a talent or ability by God? What is it you have? Use it. Now think about how you would have responded in any of these situations. Or, or take a story from your life. Think about the times you've been confronted with the consequences of your actions, right? Anybody done that? Or the responsibilities placed upon you. Are you up for those challenges? Or ask to do something outside your comfort zone. Notice I didn't say beyond your abilities. I said outside your comfort zone. How did you respond? Did you respond like Adam and Eve and hide from the truth? Or like Cain trying to evade responsibility? Or did you like Moses question your own abilities even though God was the one who gave them to you? And we all face moments of self-examination and responsibility. It's in these moments that we must seek God's guidance and strength to make righteous choices. See, we aren't judged by our doubts. I don't want you to think that you are condemned by God for, for having doubts or concerns or whatever it may be. But what you do next defines your faith, right? Every one of these ordinary heroes, right? Unextraordinary men and women of God, they start off with a doubt or a question. We've talked about that. But then when they do, they responded in faith and God had met them there. This next category called questions of faith and identity, right? Where's my faith? Who, who am I? Matthew 16, 15. Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? This is a big one. And perhaps this is the most poignant of the questions that we're going to look at this morning. And I want to dive a little deeper in the context from this week's scripture. Remember that, that Mark read. This is found in Luke 9, 18 through 20. It says, once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him. So this is not a public show, okay? He was just with the disciples and they were praying quietly away from the crowds. And he asked them, who do the crowd say I am? All these people we see and, and they follow us around. All this, who, do, who do they think I am talking to them? 19, it says, they replied, some say John the Baptist, okay? Others say Elijah, okay? And still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. These are good and noble things to be associated with, right? Godly people. But Jesus doesn't just accept the, I think they think that I've got some, some credibility or, or some gifts or some powers or something like that. He says, what about you? What do you, who do you think I am? I think this is probably the most important question that he asks us every single day. Not who do you say I am to others. Who do you say that I am when it's just us privately like this? 
In the New Testament, Jesus poses questions that challenge our faith and identity. And in Matthew 16 here, when he asks his disciples, who do you say I am? It challenged their perception of his identity. And it was a pivotal moment in their understanding of his divinity. When you say something out loud, it takes on a deeper meaning. This question calls for a confession of faith, right? Pushing the disciples to recognize Jesus as Messiah. And Peter's response, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. It affirmed Jesus as the Messiah. Is there significance in this being a private conversation, not a pronouncement? I, I think it does. Should there be a public pronouncement of faith? Sure, we should be prepared to boldly say, I am a follower of Jesus Christ. He is my Lord and Savior. I believe in him wholeheartedly. That's important. But why? It's because it's important for me to hear and say for myself. It's not for another purpose. It's not for acceptance by others. You know, I want you to believe too. I want you to know that, but I'd rather you think that I am than just for you to hear me say that. I want to lead my life in a way that you know that that would be my answer. We don't do that for membership in the church. Yes, we, we want you to be, you know, in that relationship. But this is not a checklist item. This is a very personal decision and, and statement of faith. It's not a part of an allegiance that's sworn or a vow that's made. Because when we do those things, who are we making them to? Right? Our commitment is to God, to Jesus Christ, our Savior. And these are some of the debates that create discord among God's children, even in God-loving denominations. You know, how much should we say and require and things like that? And, and cases could, could be made for both sides. And, and certainly, if you look at the ordination process, right, there's got to be some guidelines. When you enter a church, that you understand what church is what you're doing here, what you're a part of, what you're believing, and that the person leading you and the people in the board and in those ministries leading you have some basis for, for their ministry. What it is they believe, and those are good questions that everybody should be able to answer. What does your church believe? What do you believe? What are you going to be teaching me this Sunday and next Sunday and the next? Jesus warns against oaths, especially against other people. And, and if you want to read it, it's in Matthew 5. It's a part of the uh, Sermon on the Mount, 5, 33 to 37. I, I won't read it. But when he talks about, you know, making oaths or something like that, he doesn't swear. He doesn't say swear to others, right? He says when you're talking to other people, just simply say yes and let your yes be yes and your no be no, right? So when it comes to the question that you are asked by Jesus Christ in the still and private setting of your heart, tell him who he is to you. And in the company of others, when asked if you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, right? Maybe at baptism. Have you accepted Jesus Christ as Lord? Yes. Yes. That is a perfect and complete answer. Yes, is my Lord and Savior. Matthew twenty two twenty, Whose image and inscription is this? So um, the Pharisees like to, to lay little traps for, for our Savior. Starting in verse 15, it says, When the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words, they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Teacher, they said, we know that you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. I have to wonder if there's some sarcasm there, right? We know. We know you're a man of integrity, right? You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. Tell us then, what is your opinion? 
Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Boy, how do you answer that, right? It says verse 18, but Jesus knowing their evil intent said, you hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the taxes. And they brought him a denarius and he asked them, whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, so give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And when they heard this, they were amazed. So they left him and went away. So when questioned about paying taxes, Jesus asked the Pharisees to show him the coin and he asked whose image, right? Whose, whose name, whose, whose picture's in this? And his question taught that one can render the worldly authorities what is due them, right? But reminds us that we bear God's image and we should give ourselves fully to him. So Jesus responds with a question about the image inscription on a coin. He, he emphasizes that we bear God's image. This challenges us to consider our priorities and allegiance. Today, we're often confronted with questions about our faith and our identity. In a world filled with distractions and conflicting beliefs, and in a country that allows them, I think that's fantastic. I do. It's essential to, to reflect on who Jesus is to us personally. Are we living in a way that reflects his image? Are we prioritizing God's kingdom above all else? And these questions remind us of our why and guide us in our journey of faith. In, that ways, in what ways can we ensure that our identity as Christians reflect God's image in Scripture? Right? How do we do, make sure that we are marked so people know that we are his? I'm going to share one last question. It's not really a question as much. I guess it ends in a question. Woman, who are they? Where are they? Has no one condemned you? Maybe you'll remember the story. I'm going to start at, um, it's in John 8. It says, when they all went home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he appeared to them in the temple courts where all the people were gathered around him. He sat down to teach them. Now, in the temple courts, entry to the, the temple, this is where, a lot of the teaching was done. I don't want to say by the, the lay teachers, but certainly kind of this is, the, this is the common area where a lot of teachings were going on regularly. Jesus often hung out in these areas. And the teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group. And they said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. Now, does anybody, does that give anybody pause? They bring in this woman. This woman was caught in the act, Okay. They saw her doing the act of adultery. Alone? Yeah. Yeah. I digress. But so there, there's something questionable about, about the motives here, right? This woman is caught in adultery. Forget the guy, right? Forget the guy. But in the law, Moses commands us to, to stone such women. What do you say? And they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him, right? Because they weren't interested in the, the merits of the case, right? They were less um, interested in ensuring justice be done, but they're using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him, right? If Jesus disavowed the law of Moses, his credibility would be shaken, right? But if he upheld the law of Moses, he would not only be supporting a position that was largely unpopular at the time, but also think about this. This is the man who was teaching gentleness and kindness and forgiveness. What do you do? Am I breaking the law? that I've been teaching? Or am I going to not forgive the person I say I'm forgiving? So what does Jesus say? It says, Jesus bent down and started right on the ground with his finger. I love this. Sometimes the absence of the details in the Bible say a lot. 
It says, when they kept on questioning, he straightened up and said to them, let any of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. We will never know what was written on the ground. Maybe someday. We will never know in this life what was written on the ground. But whatever it was, here's what happened next. Verse nine. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Now go and leave your life of sin. I think there's some really interesting things that are happening here. We don't know what was written. I'd like to think that whatever was written was maybe in another statement of the law, explaining some things. Maybe it was calling them out on, hey, why are you picking on her and where's the guy? Maybe it was, you know, I know this about what you've done. I don't know what it is. I wonder what Jesus would have written in front of me if I was pointing at someone, condemning someone else for their sin when I freely admit that, that I have sin. What would Jesus write in the ground for me that would make me go, okay, you're right. Alone with the woman, Jesus addresses her for the first time. He, he doesn't ask her if she's guilty, but if there are others who condemn her and she's guilty, you know, you can tell that she believes she's guilty because it says, leave your life of sin. And then what he says, he says, you know, don't do it again. That is repentance. Turn away from it. And when the scribes and Pharisees brought this adulterous woman to Jesus, he asked, let any of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone. This question challenged their self-righteousness, highlights the importance of self-reflection and forgiveness, and demonstrated Jesus' mercy and grace. And we still live in a judgmental world where it's easy to point fingers and condemn others. But Jesus' question challenges us to examine our own hearts first. Are we quick to judge and slow to forgive? Remember that none of us are without sin. It's in extending mercy to others that we experience God's grace for ourselves. So I conclude this sermon. I want to remember the power of questions in our spiritual journey, right? The ones that challenge, the ones that remind, the ones that teach. These questions from the Bible aren't meant to simply be answered, but to lead us into a deeper reflection, right? What is this in my hand? What gifts have I been given? Where am I right now? Would I be embarrassed to be reminded that God is with me wherever I am, what I'm thinking, whatever I'm doing? May we, like the characters in the biblical narratives, respond to these questions with humility, with faith, and desire to grow in our relationship with God. Would you pray with me, please? Heavenly Father, you question us, not because you don't know the answers, but because we need to know the answers. And most often those questions and those answers are in our own hearts. So you call us through questions, through challenges, through tests, to reveal to ourselves our thoughts, our fears, our joys, our struggles. So when we come across a part of scripture, we read it and it asks us a question that may not make us feel super comfortable. Let's just pause for a moment on that question and ask that question of ourselves. Where am I in relationship with you? What is this in my life that I could be using for the help of others? Where is my brother that I mistreated and why? Let me, if I'm without sin, be the first to cast stones and let the others cast them at me. And when we look at our lone lives, we just go. 
And like the woman, you tell us to. We aren't judged. We aren't condemned. Just turn away from our sinful life. Lord, help us to find that path back to you. It's easily marked, guided by you. Lord, thank you for our inquisitive nature, even when the questions don't feel comfortable. We thank you that you have wisdom and power and give us the answers we need to hear and the timing we need them. When that's right away, we thank you. And when it's not, Lord, we ask you to to poke at our hearts just a little bit more until we learn the lesson you so desperately want us to hear. Because you delight in this kind of wisdom as we find joy in our life and a closer walk with you. Lord, may we leave this place changed for all we've heard. May we be convicted, but not condemned. May we be challenged, but not oppressed. May we be emboldened because you care enough about us to make us better. It's in your son's name we say.